Welcome back to Thimbleberry U. I am John Gay, joined again by Amy Wallace from Thimbleberry Financial. Always great to be with you, Amy. Jag, I always love talking to you. So today, well, we'll see how much you like talking to me today, because today we're talking about decision-making and stress, and boy, has it been a stressful year. It absolutely has. 2020, we all know the list of things that have happened, and each of those things is affecting people differently. And so I guess, you know, this is kind of an unusual topic, if you will, for a financial advisor to want to talk about. And I think most financial advisors wouldn't touch on this, but... I think it's really important because it plays into everything that we do with clients. And Mm -hmm. I think it's important for clients to understand that helping them through their stress is part of the role of a financial advisor and helping them be able to make good decisions. So I think it's a good and timely topic. Well, no, and we've talked about this before, Amy, that Part of your role is to give an objective perspective to somebody because money is so emotional and people get stressed out by money, by the markets, by so many things. Again, we don't have to run through the list of things that have happened in 2020, but your role is to sort of be that arbiter and help them through their stress to make sound decisions and sort of take the emotion out of it. So you talk about how stress affects decision making and what that looks like. Absolutely. There's a 2012 article published in Current Directions in Psychological Science, a a journal for the Association of Psychological Science that reviews how, under stress, people pay more attention to the upside of a possible outcome. So to simplify that, under stress, the grass is often greener when you're looking at change, Mm -hmm. or at least it seems that way. Got it. The study also found, as have others, that stress also increases the differences in how men and women think about risk. Hmm. Yeah, I found that really interesting. Men tend to take on more risk under stress, and it has to do with the fight or flight response. And women tend to become more conservative when faced with risk. When they're under stress. (laughs) I'm laughing because I'm thinking about my own marriage. And and as I've mentioned before to you, I've, I've been married about three years now, and When stressful things happen, I sometimes throw caution to the wind and say, whatever, I'm stressed out. I'm just going to do this anyway. And my wife is usually there to say, "Uh, no, that's really not a good idea. We should probably hang back a little bit. You know, it's funny, Jag, as I was thinking about this podcast, um, I knew you were going to have a great story about you and your wife. (laughs) (laughs) Are you saying I'm predictable? Because she would say that too. I'm saying that I can tell when... There's going to be a a good contrast between the two of you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to make sure she listens to this episode. So back to our main point here, men taking on more risk, women being more conservative, doesn't really sound like a winning combination. So how can someone make good decisions in stressful circumstances, regardless of gender? Fair enough. Or gender stereotypes. (laughs) So I have two quotes for you that I think are perfect to address uh, this question. So Sylvia Ann Hewlett said, reach within yourself at the height of the storm for that eye of calm. Mm -hmm. So let me repeat that. Reach within yourself at the height of the storm for that eye of calm. So I love this quote. And the reality is, is that it's really hard to find the calm when you're the one right in the middle of it. You know, there's stress, there's chaos. And what this really says is pause. And when you're in the throes of that, it feels so counterintuitive to pause and see where the calm is and be in a place to really identify your options. And so 
you know, the outcome in, in finding that calm or in taking that pause is you have to take space, mm-hmm. uh, take space away from the issue and you'll probably get some clarity. The second quote is from Robin Conley Downs, and it is, the truth is it's not about willpower. It's about reducing decisions. Hmm. Yeah, it's not about willpower. It's about reducing decisions. And I'm the queen of this. I always think <laughs> I can power through something and, you know, be super mom or superhero and do it all. And it's, you know, all just mental. Mm-hmm. But it is mental and it's mental in not trying to do it all. <laughs> it's mental in reduce your decisions, find tricks so that you're not using the brain power and not trying to power through it all. So instead of trying to do everything, you should make the decision to focus on doing less. Yes. All right. The trick is reducing decisions. Got it. So really, you know, how could someone make good decisions? Well, I had my list and I'll, I'll be honest, um, I figured this question was coming. And so I Googled, like, <laughs> what do you do to make a good decision? Okay. I want to compare my list to what the experts say. And so this is my list, um, but it matches up fairly well with what experts say in this. So one is what I just touched on, take space and identify what's important to you. I didn't touch mm-hmm. on that identify what's important, but when you take space under stress, you can figure out much more easily not only what the avenues are, but what the avenues are because you're back in touch with what really matters to you. So that's number one. Mm-hmm. The second one, you know, we've talked about on podcasts before, and this is really number two and number three in different forms, is recognize and acknowledge what you don't control or influence. Then move past it. That's the serenity prayer. Give me the, I, I can never name it off the top of my head, but it's, you know, let me recognize what I can't change and not stress it, essentially. Absolutely. I tend to keep this motto, you know, what do I control? What do I influence? And what do I not control and influence? Pretty top of mind. But I'll share, well, you know, I have a 12-year-old daughter and our listeners probably know that. Um, she's a good student. She's smart. She's artistic. She's responsible. Most importantly, she's really caring. Mm-hmm. And she's been in virtual school like most kids since March. And her school did an amazing job, absolutely amazing job of rolling out virtual learning earlier um, in March of 2020 when COVID, you know, happened and everybody went remote. They didn't miss a single day of school. They warned us it would probably wouldn't be very smooth. And it was amazing. Hmm. So the thing about that structure was it wasn't the virtual learning where you're sitting in class. She had a couple of Zoom calls a a week. They were announced at the beginning of the week. Um, And she thrived in that environment. Absolutely thrived because she realized she had control over her time and what that meant to getting her work done and what she could do for fun after. Ah, okay. So cause and effect were, were really close together for her. So she said, well, I want to get my work done right away, and then I want to go do art. So I'm not going to drag my work out for eight hours. Right. I'm just going to go get it done. So fast forward to this year where her school put a lot of energy into improving that virtual experience uh, because a lot of kids struggled. And now they have this thing called synchronous and asynchronous learning, and, and they've done a great job, but my daughter does not like it. <laughs> <laughs> and our whole family has been struggling with it as a result. She doesn't like it really compared to last year. 
it's more like regular school, but over a Zoom, a Zoom call. So she's on and off of it all day. She sits around a lot waiting for her next class to start and can't work on an assignment because she won't get it until class instead of it being posted the night before. So I kind of call it hurry up and wait. Yeah. It's not my favorite structure for helping her be a great human, but it is what it is. And we've also found that my daughter, which she's older, not going to love that I'm putting this out here on a podcast, isn't showing up to class quite as often. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, clearly we've been fussing about that. Some's internet connection. Some she's gotten distracted about some things. So a couple weeks ago, I talked to the principal because I wanted to share some observations that I had and see what we might be able to adjust. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden... Right. Because I've been fussing about this, watching my daughter not be happy in this structure and knowing how she thrived last year and not liking seeing her take a step back. But what really became clear to me was when the principal differentiated between self-directed learning and what that experience was and what a virtual learning experience was. And as soon as she defined that, which is the difference between last year's COVID learning and this year's COVID learning, became really clear to me that I was trying to control and influence something that I had no control and influence over, Mm. nor did I want to have control and influence over it in reality, because the goal is to get her back to school in person. And this is the structure that school is. Got it. Okay. I had to have a way to see that, that I had no control or influence. And this is a place where I was very blind to the fact I had no control or influence just because I didn't have my definitions right. You know, it's tricky to identify sometimes. So the third thing is to focus on where you do have the power, Mm -hmm. the things you do control and influence. And it might be easier to accept what you can't change. And number two, if you do the step of acknowledging what you do have control and influence over first, but that isn't always possible. So that's why I put them in this order. And the last thing that I think someone can do to make really good decisions in stressful circumstances is so we talked about briefly reduce decision making. Yeah, you hit on that earlier, Amy. Let me follow up on that. Reducing decisions. What do you mean by that? Well, various internet sources claim that human adults make over 35,000 decisions daily. Oh, oh, God. No wonder we're so tired. And stressed. Yeah. Yeah. By contrast, children make only 3,000. I miss those days. <laughs> So a Cornell study in 2006 found that participants estimated that they make 15 food-related decisions daily. So 15 food decisions. But the reality was 15 times bigger than that at over 200 daily food decisions. You know, I'm three hours ahead of you and it's lunchtime, so thank you for reminding me of that. (laughs) No problem. So the takeaway here is, right, you can sit here at lunchtime for you and say, well, I can go get Grubhub. I can order from there. I can uh, run down the street to my favorite place. I can make a PB&J sandwich. I can do all these different things. Right. Each one of those that you're considering is a decision that relates to food. And each one gives you an opportunity to make a mistake. Oh, God. Oh, no. (laughs) A mistake in terms of calories, a mistake in terms of money, right? So there's lots of consequences to these decisions. So this is a great example. I love this example of food because we all splurge. My my son got this horrifically big bag of Halloween candy, (laughs) a four-year-old, because our street said, we are all going to turn out the lights. We're going to open a little parade in the afternoon. And let the kids just walk by and every family can put a table out with treats. Yeah. Well, because we normally get about a thousand trick-or-treaters on our street, 
every house went crazy with the oh, amount no. of stuff. Like we opened one goodie bag and it had five full-size candy bars and about six Halloween-sized candy bars. <laughs> so let's say he's four. We put the candy away. Well, well, guess who can get to it? My husband and I. Mm. So there's not all that much candy left a couple of weeks after Halloween. Um, so if we can make a reduced decision, so meal planning, where you make the decisions at one time so that you're not sitting there at, at figuring out, do you order lunch or do you go make the peanut butter and jelly or something else? Right. So you have to change the environment. So moving away from the food, we can look at leaders of some companies that have become household names. Steve Jobs, he wore the same outfit. Mark Zuckerberg mm -hmm. wears the same T-shirt. Barack Obama only wore suits in two colors. Mm -hmm. So that's an example of how you reduce decision making and reduce stress as a result. Keep in mind, Steve Jobs and Mark Zuckerberg wore those T-shirts before we were all working from home and wearing T-shirts ourselves, too. So keep that in mind. Very true. <laughs> All right, so how does all this tie to decisions about money, Amy? Let's bring this home as we wrap up here. Yeah. Well, money alone is stressful for people. And I think it's important that if we're talking about our future, which is really what money gives us, we need to recognize that money is a tool. It's like a shovel or a hammer. It helps us get a job done. Mm -hmm. So by acknowledging it's a tool, we can help take away some of the power stigma associated with money. Makes sense. All right. So the, the job that that tool does, you know, with it being money, could be feeding ourselves and our families. It can be traveling the world in retirement or achieving financial independence at an early age. Mm -hmm. So when facing a money decision, especially when under stress, it's good to have a sounding board. Right. Now, as a financial advisor, I think it's fair to say I might be biased, <laughs> but I believe it's better to have a professional than someone who isn't in this case. Fair. By them being a professional, they can help with all four of the items I mentioned earlier. Understanding what's important to you, recognizing what you don't control and influence, focusing on what you do control and influence, and then helping you reduce decision making mm -hmm. so that under stress, you already have a game plan and don't have to be questioning what you're going to be doing. And then they can tie all that together to show you how the different decisions will impact you. They're there to give you fact-based data, reduce emotions, as you mentioned earlier, and ultimately, we hope reduce stress and decision fatigue. And now decision fatigue could be its own episode <laughs> at another time. Right. Um, but they are there. That financial professional is there to be the calm in the storm and help you do the right thing for you. And to be the calm in one of our listeners' storms, if they're experiencing troubled waters. Okay, I'm really stretching analogies here. But <laughs> if somebody wants your professional help, Amy, in helping get their finances straight and getting a game plan and taking some of that emotion and stress out of it, what are the best ways to find you? Yeah, they can find us at our website, thimbleberryfinancial.com, or they can give us a call, 503-610-6510. I now have paralysis analysis as I try to think about what I'm going to get for lunch, so I appreciate that very much. <laughs> no problem. I, let me know next time we talk. Take care, Amy. All right, you too. Registered representative, securities offered through Cambridge Investment Research, Inc., a broker-dealer, member FINRA, SIPC. Investment advisor representative, Cambridge Investment Research Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Cambridge and Thimbleberry Financial are not affiliated.